Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. I have with me Stephen Hyatt, who's going to talk with us about Radiohead's Kid A, which is celebrating its 20th anniversary. He is the author of a new book, This Isn't Happening, Radiohead's Kid A in the Beginning of the 21st Century. He's also a cultural critic for Up Rocks and the host currently of a podcast called Rivals. That's a lot of fun. Stephen, welcome. Brian, it's always a pleasure. Always good to have you. And I was saying before the show, what's amazing is you managed to write a fun book about Radiohead's Kid A, which isn't necessarily congruent with the album itself. It's a fun, riffy book about an album not designed to spark fun, although I find it fun to listen to. It's not the normal. It's not fun like the Britney Spears album that came out the same year that that probably were the two albums that I spent the most time listening to that year, uh, which says a lot perhaps about the split in my personality. But how did you come to realize that you wanted to write this book? Let's start there. Well, you know, we're coming up now. It's been 20 years into this new century that we're in. I mean, it's not a new century. We're, we've been living in the 21st century for a while now. And it just seems like a natural time to to look back and not only reflect on culture, but all the things that we've that we've gone through in the past two decades. And I think you're right. I mean, I think the book is fun. Hopefully people laugh when they're reading it. But, you know, there are a lot of things in there that I'm writing about that are pretty dark and depressing. Not just the album, but again, like just how crazy the last two decades have been. You know, I I think one of the attractions of, of Kid A, along with it just being this landmark great album, is it came out, you know, at the beginning of the 21st century, really before like the new century, I think, really began. You know, it, it comes out in October of 2000. The next month, you have the Gore v. v. Bush election, which, of course, ends up being this debacle that is decided by the Supreme Court. So I think that is, I think for a generation of people, the beginning of this like political disillusionment that we're still experiencing today in 2020. And then of course, the you know, about 11 months after Kid A, you have September 11th and Kid A ends up being very much tied to that event as well. That leads to these two wars in Iraq and Afghanistan that we find out is based on WMDs that aren't actually there, which just fuels more of this kind of paranoia and distrust of of the media and, and, and our politicians that I, I think really defines this age. And of course, you have all the things with the internet that have come into play, I think, since this record came out. So, you know, I think with this album, you know, it's not my favorite Radiohead album. I love Kid A, but I probably love OK Computer more. But I think as a topic for a book, it's just so rich uh, because there's so many different jumping off points that you can make and, and and really talk about not just the record, but again, like the whole world and, and a culture and how that's developed in the last two decades. It is, as it happens, my favorite Radiohead album. I think uh, I'm just going to go ahead and call you a raucous, Steve. I think that if you choose OK Computer <laughs> over Kid A. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I write about this a little bit in the book. I mean, I think 
the significance of OK Computer for me has a lot to do with when it came out. You know, I was 19 years old when OK Computer dropped. And I'm, I would venture to guess that for a lot of people, their favorite records probably came out sometime between the ages of 16 and 21. And it just has to do with where you are in your life at that moment that you haven't heard a lot of music yet. You're really primed to have your mind blown in a way that even if you love music later on, it, it, it's just not quite the same. So I think that has something to do with it as well. I mean, I think with Radiohead, for me, it's about three albums. OK Computer, Kid A, and then Rainbows. I think those are the three big ones. Obviously, you have The Benz, you have Hail to the Thief. Those are those are great records as well. But I think those are like the three big touchstones in their career. Um, and I end up writing quite a bit about all three of those records. You know, obviously focusing on Kid A, but also, you know... I, how OK Computer led up to Kid A and, and I think how In Rainbows was also influenced by what they were doing on that record, but in a much different way. So I don't know. I, see, when you use the word raucous, I feel like that implies that I think rock music is superior in like sort of a macro sense. And I don't think that's true, but I do, have, of course, have my own tastes, things I like personally, though I don't impose that on the entire world. Uh, but so do you think Kid A is the Poptimist Radiohead record? Well, first of all, I was kind of messing with you. But second of all, <laughs> uh, it's not the Poptimist Radiohead record, although that would be an interesting case to make. And I also think we're, we're already in danger of disappearing in the weeds here. But I, I do think that that Kid A is, as you say in the book, it's still a rock record for all their efforts to lose themselves, to disappear completely. They don't. It's it's very much a rock album and very much just as OK Computer was, you know, it, it's not even that far afield in some ways from like the White Album. Not really. You know, it, it, it's, it's still very much, as you say, in the tradition of everything they were trying to escape. And the more electronics they put on, the more it emphasizes where they're actually coming from in some ways. It's just they, they can't escape what they are. That all makes sense. And I think there's no question, I think, that if Radiohead had made a more straightforward record, which you can easily imagine them doing, if you take songs from Amnesiac and the more straight ahead songs from Kid A, you can make a record, you know, that has optimistic You and Who's Army, I Might Be Wrong, uh, Knives Out, Pyramid Song, like a record like that, which would have been more in line with what OK Computer was. And those are all wonderful songs, and I'm sure that would have been a great record. I'm not quite sure, though, if that would have done what Kid A did for Radiohead, which to me, it ensured that they weren't going to be a 90s band. It like ushered them into a new age. In the same way that like if you look at some of their contemporaries from the 90s, even if they continued on and they are still big touring attractions, they're, they're still kind of stuck in the 90s in terms of their like peak recorded output you know there's lots of examples that we could cite i think of that um just to go back to what you were saying about like the musical differences between kid a and okay computer i mean i think for me it's not so much the musical differences it's the emotional differences and i think if you listen to like the early radiohead albums they're so expressive and they're so operatic and there's like these great peaks often coming from tom york's vocals um, almost like a Freddie Mercury type quality to his voice, especially if you're thinking of something like Paranoid Android, you know, just almost like a spiritual rush. And you get to Kid A and they very deliberately tamp that down. You know, that is a much more claustrophobic, contained record. And even comparing it to something like In Rainbows, for instance, which I think In Rainbows has like a sensuality to it that is 
in many ways the total opposite of Kid A. I think you know, like like Kid A is like their Stanley Kubrick film. You know, it's their Chili album, um, and I think that's one of the brilliant things about it. It's one of the things I love. It's a, it's definitely a mood record, but you know, sometimes that can also make it hard to access, even if you love the record. You know, it's hard to imagine putting on Kid A at a barbecue. You know, and like you could maybe do that within Rainbows, but you have to be in a certain frame of mind uh, to really want to put on Kid A and, and, and spend time with it. Increasingly, as I get older, and for some reason, I'm, I'm talking about my taste much more than usual. I guess it, it's your writing. <laughs> it's your writing that brought it out. I love of it. it. It's your writing they brought out. I'm bringing, of up, yeah, so, it's, I'm bringing out the music critic in yeah, you. This is great. But in, increasingly, and I, I got to think about this as I made my list for the uh, new Rolling Stone 500 Greatest Albums of All Time, which we talked about on, on last week's episode. I think for me, the albums that rank the very highest, and there's many things that albums can do, but the things that rank the very highest are the ones that create their own self-enclosed universe. And that's why, you know, Kid I was very high on my ballot. It was in the top five, uh, along with D'Angelo's Voodoo, kind of its own world, this kind of sonic landscape that you can live in for a while. Totally. And, and on a slightly different level, but I'd argue similar Asia by, by Steely Dan, because it's kind of the glossiness of it and the perfection of it remind me weirdly of, of Kid A in a very bizarre way. Oh, that, I love that. You know, that that's, and that's probably the, uh, the Rob Sheffield and me talking because that's an insane comparison in some ways. But I think we should take a step back and get back to the, the kind of sociological significance because I, I was about to crack the cover of your book and I was re-listening to Kid A before I read a word of the book. And my thoughts went to an idea that turned out to be central to your book. And I'm sure, you know, even just reading the title had helped get me there. But it's just listening to it. There was a time I had entertained the thought and many people use this as a criticism that, yes, perhaps there was a slight silliness to all the the paranoia and alienation that was being expressed both by Tom York and in the music itself, that, that it was all like a bit much that the that was you said you were too young to ever feel that way. It all just seemed about right to you. But I, I sometimes wondered like, oh, come on, lighten up, man. You know, some, sometimes there's a little bit of that. And instead, listening to and not just it was actually, you know, it was Kid A and then going straight into Amnesiac and listening to a bunch of that stuff. It's just like, oh, no, this feels <laughs> if this feels exactly like right now, emotionally. And if anything, it's just paranoid enough, barely. It's just crazy enough because this <laughs> this is what they did. They captured what it was going to feel like to live in the 21st century. And I, I think that's at the core of some of the ideas you're writing about. Yeah, you make a great point there that I think in the year 2000, especially like when this album came out uh, in October, that there were people that thought that this band is like, they're too negative. They're too like kind of up their own ass in a way with this record. I know that there were, especially in Britain, like the British press were really hard on Kid A. And there was this feeling of like, you know, kind of rolling your eyes at like a record that would, you know, evoke George Orwell and, you know, all of these sort of dystopian ideas. I think, you know, this is really coming out of the 90s where the 90s were relatively like a happy-go-lucky time. I mean, it didn't, I mean, people in music especially there was a lot of angst going on but i think there was this general perception that like for the most part especially if you're like a white male band like like what do you have to be 
angsty about like think life is pretty good you know there's not we're not in the middle of a war the economy's doing well you know what are you complaining about and of course you know in the book i i call kid a the overture for the 21st century because i really feel like in a way as you were saying that there were things in that record that you know i i, I don't say that like radiohead was predicting what was going to happen it's nothing like that sort of deliberate because you know the other thing about the lyrics on this record is that they're intentionally vague and nonsensical i mean that was something that tom york was very conscious of doing not having any kind of literal meaning to it it's much more about the mood that's created by the sound of his voice and and i really think the sort of chaotic nature of the lyrics which i think also ended up being prescient because a lot of lyrics on this record they read like status updates to me like they could be tweets or facebook posts you know like uh Yesterday I woke up sucking on a lemon, you know, like that's sort of Send like a tweet. nonsensical yeah. thing. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Just something you did. And, you know, the idea that we are now sort of, you know, we're in front of our computers all day long or in front of our phones and we're absorbing this litany of chaotic information that often doesn't have context, but we have to sort of contextualize it in our mind and make up our own reality in a way out of all that stuff. That's the reality of Kid A. And it wasn't the reality of 2000, but it is the reality of now. So yeah, I mean, in the book, I, I have this thing where I say this album, it doesn't predict the future, but it seems of the future. It seems like it, someone took it from the future, you know, like the way you would take a gadget off the shelf in the year 2020, and you take it back to 2000, and, and you just present it to people and you say, this is what this thing is, I'm not going to tell you what it is. But uh, just try to make sense of it for yourself. And then it's only over time that you kind of start to see what this thing really is. Uh, but yeah, it, it, in a way, it kind of took 20 years for us to catch up to this record. We wanted to take a step back and talk about where it came from and what the context was. It's funny to do a an utterly absurd name drop. I somehow backwardsly brought up Kid A to Bruce Springsteen uh, ah. a, a, about a month ago. Uh, when we were talking about how Bruce moved away from the most sort of iconic version of the E Street Band sound, really as soon as Darkness. Like, Born to Run had that thing of glockenspiel, and the particular thing that you hear at the, you know, the beginning of, of, of Jungle Land or Thunder Road, and actually... The truth is he was already moving away from it like right away. And part of it, I, what I wanted him to admit was it was because he heard it on the meatloaf record. Um, that, that's what I, uh, because that's, that's his Travis, you know, it's, it's like, oh yeah. 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 So, but in the course of that, you know, I, I brought up Pearl Jam and, you know, I was, I was saying to use latter day examples, you know, uh, Tom York from Radiohead heard his voice everywhere and it drove him crazy and it, it pushed him away from it. And Eddie Vedder said the same thing. So anyway, long story short, set the scene for, why Radiohead felt the need to try to reinvent themselves from scratch or so they, so they thought for this album. So Radiohead really hits a new peak in their career with the release of OK Computer, which comes out in 1997. And up until that point, they had had success with the song Creep, which came out on their first record called Pablo Honey. And it was a song so big that it actually was bigger than the band and has really had a separate life from the band ever since it became a hit in the early 90s and there was a I, I think a perception for a really long time that like Radiohead was just going to be this like one hit wonder you know like one of the many bands that came out of the MTV buzz bin in the wake of Nirvana and they were going to be this like sort of forgettable 
you know, copycat grunge type group. You point out this amazing uh, Chuck Eddy review in Spin where he, which I, you know, I, I don't want to diss Chuck, but it was the attitude and it was just like, he dissed them, then dissed a bunch of other really good bands like Smashing Pumpkins, uh, but just was like, th- this is of their second album, right? And he's just like, you know, they're always going to try to make a second album these bands and they're always going to fail. But sorry, and it's just exactly. amazing. But go on, please. Yeah, exactly. There was this thing of like, okay, you've had your hit, now now fade away. And Radiohead had to really fight that image, not just on the bands, but even into OK Computer. Like when you look at some of the reviews of OK Computer, you know, from Rolling Stone and Spin and other major publications, like they were still referencing Creep in the lead. And the idea was that like, okay, now with OK Computer, they've finally put Creep to bed. You know, they've made their masterpiece. They've shown that they're a major band. And they go on tour and it's a big tour. And, you know, Radiohead, you know, contrary to what people might think, I mean, they did want to be successful. And they worked really hard in the 90s to build their name you know, and they were road dogs. They toured all the time. I, I think in 95, they played something like 180 shows. So it was like a show every other day. You know, they opened up for REM on the Monster Tour. They opened up for Alanis Morissette. They're doing all the things that you do to, to really build your name and to become successful. It's all kind of finally come into fruition with OK Computer. And I think like a lot of bands, when they're in that position, it's not quite what you thought it was going to be it's not as transformational as you thought it was going to be in the book i write about this concert that they played in birmingham england where tom york basically just had a breakdown and before the show he tried to leave the arena i don't know if he was going to like ditch the show or if he just wanted to get a breath of fresh air but you know there was this sort of very metaphorical thing that unfolded where he literally could not leave the arena like he was trying to find an exit out of this place and he finally did and he got on a train and he realized that everyone on the train was was radiohead fans so he ended up you know just letting the train take him back to the arena and again it's a very sort of metaphorical situation like he literally cannot escape fame at at this point like physically can't escape So they play the show. It's a great show. And then after the show, he's backstage with the band and Tom York is catatonic. You know, he he just can't communicate with the rest of the band. And he's just going through something where, again, I think it was that realization that like we've done it. It's great or it should be great. And I'm, I'm just not enjoying it. So I think there was that sort of disillusionment with with their status. And then I think on top of that was this feeling of sort of musical inadequacy that was driven by and you alluded to this before that like radiohead by the time of 97 98 had really become like a cliche of british rock that there were already a lot of bands emulating that style that sort of rich blend of electric and acoustic guitars with the lead singer who has the high voice who can do all these beautiful runs you know sort of a jeff buckley meets freddie mercury type vocal style that tom york has and there's an epigraph that I have in the book where, where Tom York, it's a quote of his where he says, I hate, or I'm annoyed by how pretty my voice is. And he really went through that <laughs> feeling at the time. So, by the way, talk about inventing the uh, 21st century. He invented the humble breath. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, you know, he, he just, he's just in this frame of mind where he, he's writing songs, but he doesn't like what he's writing. But he's really into this, this new record label called Warp Records, which is putting out just, an incredible litany of like brilliant electronic artists, you know, most notably Aphex Twin, who ends up being a big influence on on Tom York at this time. And I think you can hear him most 
tangibly on Kid A on the song Idiotique, which is very much even like a Apex Twin pastiche, maybe, if you were more critical of, of, of Radiohead. So, yeah, I mean, I think really what they went through is something that like a lot of big, you know, rock acts, musical acts have gone through at some point in their career. You know, I alluded to this in the book, you know, Bob Dylan went through something similarly after Blonde on Blonde or David Bowie went through something like that around his Ziggy Stardust period where he like actually retired Ziggy Stardust. It's just one of these great reckonings like where you get everything you want, but it's not quite what you thought it was going to be. And you also feel like your music is it just sounds lame to you on some level. And I think that was really true for Radiohead. So those were the things that were really driving them to reinvent themselves. And the process of trying to do so was not easy. Uh, you talk about a lot of false starts that I guess you trace through through bootlegs and through studio accounts and talk about how they started to try to reinvent themselves and, and maybe a little bit of how you actually were able to, to trace that reinvention. Well, one thing I thought was really interesting about Radiohead not just looking at Kid A, but looking at the creation of a lot of their albums is how insecure they are (laughs) in a lot of ways. You know, I mean, I don't think it's unusual for musicians to be insecure, but I think the specific thing about Radiohead is that it seems like like they often don't want to sound like Radiohead when they start a record. You know, there's this very, I think, um, sort of unsure feeling that they have whenever they're recording songs that remind them too much of themselves and it seems like that was the real bugaboo really with kid a like as they were working on this record throughout 1999 uh i mean 99 especially i think was a very difficult time for them i mean they were going to different studios they were in paris you know they were they were working at home in oxford they went to a couple different places and they were just recording like a lot of stuff but they just weren't, you know, they weren't liking a lot of anything that they were doing. And, you know, it's, it's really hard, I think, to go into a situation where the, your idea is, let's do something different. But it's like, what is different exactly? You know, again, there was this obsession that Tom York had with electronic music at the time. And he did work up some demos that were essentially, you know, beats and glitches and, and more along the lines, I guess, of an Aphex Twin record. And he would bring them to the band and the band really would wouldn't know what to do with it, you know, because it's like we're a guitar, bass, and drums band. I mean, we can't really play this sort of thing. Meanwhile, they were also coming up with songs like Knives Out, which ended up being on uh, Amnesiac, which was the record that also came out of those sessions in 99 and 2000. And you listen to Knives Out and you think, well, this just sounds like a song that Radiohead probably recorded in 10 minutes. I mean, it's such a straightforward, beautiful track, but you know, that song especially became notorious for how much time they put into it. There was some story about it taking like over 300 days for them to finish this just simple kind of minor key guitar ballad. And again, I think that speaks to just how much they wanted to do something different, but didn't know how to get there. You know, it's it's that proverbial looking for your car keys in the dark type thing. You're just feeling around forever and you know it's out there, but you can't quite find it. And that's true of, of the Kid A sessions. It's also true of like In Rainbows, you know, and other records that they've made in their career. And I don't know, that just fascinates me because you look at Radiohead and they're like one of the most acclaimed and beloved bands of their generation. But, you know, even a band that loved and respected, you know, when they're by themselves in the studio, it just seems like 
all that goes out the window and all the insecurities come back that you had when you were first starting out. And I think part of the drama of the whole thing is with any great artistic endeavor, a few wrong steps and you've made something really bad and you can see the dangers that were lurking you know he said why don't we be like can you know and jam for hours and and take the best parts and now can's a great band but you know it, had they really become like can you know can probably sold <laughs> on their in the best year i mean of their lives they sold the, the most tiny fraction of the worst day of Radiohead's career. So it's just, you know, it's it's some of the stuff literally sounded like commercial suicide probably to the other guys in the band and also just like a bad idea. Like he he was pushing, he wanted to do things that sounded kind of impossible and there there was an element that could have destroyed the band's future, I think, had they followed some of these directions. Yeah, I mean, I think that there was an element of Kid A of like wanting to make it difficult. I think with some artists, there's this idea of like the, you know, it's almost like Homer's Odyssey. You know, we have to go out, we have to, we have to struggle. It has to take a long time. And if it's too easy, then what we're doing actually isn't any good. And I, I get the sense that Radiohead, consciously or not, subscribes to that idea. Because again, like when you look at the songs that they were making at that time, they were coming up with commercial songs. You know, and there were songs, and there is a record that they could have made where, you know, they could have taken the most commercial bits of what ended up on Kid A and Amnesiac and made like a relatively straightforward record. Maybe, I guess, in spite of Tom York's best intentions or, or worst ideas, however you want to put it, like this was still like a great guitar rock band. And they could come up with stuff like I Might Be Wrong and Optimistic. Or a beautiful ballad like How to Disappear Completely or Pyramid Song, even when they were trying to completely reinvent themselves. I mean, really, like when you listen to Kid A, you know, I think this is more clear now than it was in 2000. I think if you listen to the first song, Everything in Its Right Place, that's a pretty radical departure. And Idiotique is, is pretty different from anything that they did from other records. And certainly the title track is pretty far out there. But like for the most part, like it's not that like weird you know it still sounds like a radiohead record and again maybe that's just because of the benefit of hindsight you know we've been living with this record for a long time um i think you know you can never underestimate the power of rhetoric when a record comes out and like how artists present an album affecting how people hear it and i think tom york definitely wanted this album to be per to be perceived as a provocation you know he wanted it to be perceived as like a break from rock music even if you could make the argument that there is still quite a bit of rock music on Kid A, you know, uh, but the idea of it breaking with the past was, I think, very important to him. And everything in its right place was actually kind of the the breakthrough that led to the real recording of the album, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, again, I think, you know, they're working in 1999, they're recording stuff, but they're not really nothing's really sticking for them. And it should be noted that like a lot of the stuff that they recorded early on, they actually, they did go back to later on and feel like, Oh, actually this is better than we thought. I mean, like one of the first songs uh, that they, that they worked on is a song called lost at sea, which ended up on the record as in limbo, you know, that's so songs that they were working on early. It's not like they trashed all that stuff. In some cases they just had to sort of give themselves a little bit more space 
and then go back and and realize that it was much better than they originally thought. But yeah, like you said, Everything in its Right Place was originally written by Tom York on a piano. And when he brought it into the studio and Nigel Godrich heard it, you know, it didn't really make much of an impression. It, it, and if you imagine that song just being played on a piano, you, could, you can kind of see what he means. I mean, it doesn't seem like a song that it would be pointing to the future necessarily or, or defining what this record's going to sound like. But when they started playing it on that Prophet 5 synthesizer and you get that incredible tone that opens the record, which I think honestly might be the greatest side one track one of all time. I, it's definitely in the conversation for me, just in terms of like a tone setter for a record. Agreed. Just the, Agreed. the first 10 or 15 seconds of that song are so striking and just create a mood of like menace and paranoia. It's it, it's just an incredible thing. So to hear it, I think like that, it just transformed the song. And I think they knew immediately that this is going to be the first track. I think there was a thought that this was going to be a single, but then they eventually decided that there weren't going to be any singles from the record. That was a song that you couldn't imagine being on another Radiohead record. Like that was the beginning of a new era for the band. And for me still, that's like, I think the strongest moment on the record and really like one of my favorite Radiohead songs, period. Yeah. You mentioned something that Jeff Tweedy from Wilco likes to say, and it's extremely true. And he would know that the first song really defines albums in people's minds. And you can really mess with people's heads if you're the band when you decide what to put first, because it, it can define the way you hear a record as opposed to a, if they had started with one of the more traditional sounding tracks we might not be having this discussion right now you know? <laughs> well yeah at all. well yeah because it opens with everything in its right place and then it goes into the title track and those are two those are definitely two of like the least sort of radiohead sounding songs at that moment in time and then you have like the national anthem coming in pretty early as well you know yeah it did started the record with like optimistic for instance or even a song like morning bell you know two songs that you could imagine being on okay computer you're right i wonder if people would have necessarily thought of it being it this big curveball you know that it was contextualized as yeah because like when you hear that first song you hear those that synthesizer at the beginning of everything in its right place it's like yeah you are way far away from paranoid android or fake plastic trees and just how tom york's voice sounds on that too like how it's treated and it's like you know, manipulated over and over again, you know, it, 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 Tom York doesn't sound like himself. And that was very much the point of that record. And yeah, it really just sets the tone for like what's going to be coming after. In a broader context, what was pretty prescient of them was just seeing that the guitar rock of the 90s itself, in the most broad sense, was going to be a little bit played out. The whole alternative rock guitar thing was essentially over by the year 2000. And they helped not show a way forward because I don't know how many people actually followed their path, but they found a way forward for themselves. How do you see it in that context, Dave? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a crucial thing about Kid A with Radiohead that they were able, I think, with that record to move into a new decade in a way that a lot of their 
alt-rock contemporaries in the 90s weren't. And I think it's for the reason that you said that on Kid A, they were very consciously, even if they weren't actually doing it on some songs, but they were, I think, very vocal about moving beyond guitar rock and moving into, you know, realms of electronic music and really just kind of taking like a post-rock attitude towards how they were going to be, uh, you know, acting as a band. And I think that that played a big role in Radiohead having the status that they do now, which is the rare 90s rock band that could still headline music festivals, like back when there were music festivals. You know, like they headlined Coachella, I think it was in 2017 or so. It was 2017 or 2018. And it's really hard for me to imagine like another 90s rock band doing that, you know, having the kind of status that Radiohead has. I think that they are one of the only bands of that generation that younger people look to as still having some vitality to them and being forward-looking. And I don't know if that happens if they decide to make the more straightforward sequel to OK Computer in the year 2000. Like if they had said, we're going to wave the flag for proggy guitar rock epics and and make OK Computer Part 2, that could have been a very successful record in the short run. But I think that the generation coming up might have looked at that as being a little passe. And I think that record, in combination with In Rainbows, having a record like that later in their career, that was a forward-thinking record in terms of their business practices, you know, the pay-what-you-want thing being ahead of the curve. But I think also just that record being really great, it gave them that sort of like mid-career to late-career masterpiece that younger listeners, if you're a millennial or even a Zoomer, and that was the first Radiohead record that you could get into like when you were a teenager... It just introduced them to a new generation in a way that, you know, again, like a lot of other bands of that generation, they, they didn't have that. Like all of their important work is in the 90s and it's all of a piece of that scene, that alternative rock guitar centric scene. And, and Radiohead isn't like that. They have different periods of their career uh, that appeal to different people. I think it's important too. I write about this in the book. I think it's fascinating to compare Radiohead and, and U2 because I think there's, there are a lot of parallels there. And, you know, Radiohead put out Kid A in October of 2000. U2 put out All That You Can't Leave Behind in the same month. You know, we're going to be celebrating the 20th anniversary of that at the end of October. And U2 is going in the opposite direction. They very much were embracing sort of old world rock music. You know, that record was a throwback to like their Joshua Tree sound and it was tremendously successful and beautiful day is a great song and it really i think gave them a jolt of much needed kind of career energy at that time but they're a band too that like at one point had been doing what radiohead was doing you know with octune baby and zuropa i mean that was like their kid a period essentially and then they kind of went back and almost discounted that i think bono at one point sort of poo-pooed zuropa as being like, well, that we went a little bit too far with that, and we should be writing pop songs. And that's defined their career arc really since then. Like, U2's always wanted to engage the mainstream, while Radiohead has retreated from it in a lot of ways. And certainly U2's done great in the last 20 years. I mean, they're still playing stadiums, so you can't really fault them too much for that. But I do think that Radiohead was prescient and not wanting to chase the world's biggest rock band status that U2's always really wanted and and really taken to heart because really like in this century 
being the world's biggest rock band, I mean, like, what does that even mean? It's like being like the world's fastest covered wagon, you know, like no one really cares about that in the 21st century that the way that they did, you know, in the 20th century. I, I think you're absolutely right. And that, that one of the things you mentioned in your book is despite everything, and there's a sort of hilarious irony to it, despite everything that Radiohead did, they're still seen by many as retroactively part of the classic rock canon and a total dad rock band. And it's just so oh, totally. funny. It's so totally. funny. We had uh, this idea that, that Kid A was going to destroy rock music or that, you know, Radiohead was sort of out to like separate themselves from rock history. And you're right. I do think that that album actually ushered them into the classic rock sort of status, <laughs> you know, because now they are this rare <laughs> legacy band that, uh, you know, they can headline festivals, they can play arenas, and I think they have been passed down from generation to generation because of records like Kid A. I think the thing with Radiohead is that they've always been able to play it both ways in a lot of respects, that they can play the sort of anti-rock card while at the same time leaning into it. You know, it was just like when they were inducted in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, like they sort of made fun of the idea for a while. And like, you know, obviously Tom York and Johnny Greenwood didn't show up, but like Ed O'Brien... And uh, Phil Selway did, and they were actually very lovely on stage, and they gave a very nice acceptance speech. So it's like they could kind of reject that honor while at the same time accepting it at the same time. And I think that's true of Kid A. Kid A could sort of reject the classic rock canon, but I think now, 20 years later, that's a classic rock record. You know, I don't think there's really any arguing with that. So there's so many contradictions <laughs> in this band, but... There are with a lot of great artists, you know, that's what makes artists great, I think, being able to reconcile those contradictions. On some level, it's kind of hilarious, like, you know, it's not like David Bowie hadn't made Low a million years beforehand, you know, <laughs> and still stayed David Bowie. And it's not like even the Smashing Pumpkins, of all people, hadn't made a door two years earlier. On some level, there was a bit of like, as great as I think this album is, and I literally put it in my top five albums of all time, it just never was as radical as anyone wanted it to be. You know, it, it's beautiful. It's, it, it's radicalness or lack thereof is besides the point to me. Well, and, you know, that, that template that you're talking about where the guitar rock hero transitions into being like an electronic music provocateur, I mean, that has been used again and again. And, and it seems like maybe David Bowie originated it, although maybe you could say the Beatles did when they went from, you know, Hard Day's Night to Sgt. Pepper, going from being like this lovable guitar rock band to being more of an experimental studio-bound band. But I think with Radiohead, they're definitely referencing David Bowie when he went into his Berlin trilogy. There's some talking heads in there, like when they went into Remain in Light after being this post-punk band on their early records. Of course, Brian Eno is a common denominator in both of those. I mentioned U2 earlier. U2 did the same thing with Octane Baby and Zuropa. And then after Radiohead, you have like Arcade Fire doing the same thing like with Reflector and everything now. And, <laughs> and you know, and they used James Murphy was their Brian Eno on right. Reflector, you know. So there does seem to come a point like where if you become successful enough as a guitar rock band that like you almost have to make the electronic like curveball record, you know, like that's your art record now. Um, and yeah, and, I, and now it's like, I think when, when Kid A was made, it was like, oh, they're doing their Berlin trilogy record. But now it might be, you're doing your Kid A record. Right. Like now Kid right. A is On the, that note, that. Stephen Hyden, thanks so much 
for joining us today. I, clearly, we could have done this all day. Stephen is the author of the new book, This Isn't Happening, Radiohead's Kid A and the Beginning of the 21st Century. Thanks again. And that is today's episode. We'll be back next week here on Sirius XM's volume, channel 106. In the meantime, we are a podcast. Download us as a podcast. Subscribe to us as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Maybe leave us a nice review on iTunes if you can. But as always, stay safe. Thanks for listening. And we will see you next week. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord, we get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.